Good morning, Sound City. How are we doing? Think it's good? Enjoying the sunshine? Maybe summer will actually be here. Uh, for those of you not yet met, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Really glad to have you. As Pastor Travis said, we're going through the book of Hebrews together as a church. We've been going through the book of Hebrews together uh, for the better part of the last almost year, about nine months now. Uh, we'll be continuing that through the fall until we finish. And right now where we're at in, in the book of Hebrews, we're in chapter 11, which really is this kind of a, a subset, a subsermon, if you will, really focused in on the idea of faith. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the, the idea of faith, the definition of what faith is. Last week, we started looking at certain examples. We looked at the example of Abel and the example of Enoch. And today, we've got one verse to cover, uh, the verse that mentions Noah. And so that means we have one verse, but that also means we have three chapters of Genesis to cover. So uh, buckle up. We've got a lot to cover. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read uh, our one verse for the day. I'd like to pray and then spend some time unpacking this together. So read with me if you would. Hebrews 11. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. <clears throat> by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to open the scriptures, and to see what you would speak to us. God, the, the Bible says that, that all scripture is breathed out by you, and that it's profitable for us for, for teaching, and training, and correcting, and uh, rebuking, and, and, and being transformed. God, we, we want to be different people than we were when we walked in today, and we believe that uh, that comes through your word. And God, I ask that you'd send your Holy Spirit to bring these words to life right now in our hearts and our minds. God, I pray for all of us we'd have soft and teachable hearts. And God, would you guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is uh, in line with your truth from your word. We pray all of this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Everyone said, amen. Have you ever been really certain about something? Just something that you were really certain about that you knew that you knew, but somebody else doubted you? Somebody else didn't maybe have faith in you, they didn't believe in you. I remember one time when I was in elementary school, uh, there was a school project, and I grew up in Alaska, and the, the, the school project was you had to draw a picture of your state's license plate. You had to draw a picture of the license plate. Now, I'm terrible at drawing. I, I can barely write my own name legibly. And so I asked my, my mother, I said, Mom, would you please help me draw a picture of the state license plate? And, and my mom said to me, well, sure, but I'm not very good at drawing bears. And I, and I thought to myself for a minute, that's weird because there's no bear on the Alaska state license plate. And my mom grew up in Oregon, and then she'd moved to Alaska, and then she'd kind of moved around a little bit. And in her mind, the Alaska state license plate had a bear on it. And I said, no, no, mother, there's no bear on the Alaska car license plate. She goes, yes, there absolutely is a bear. And we got into a rather heated exchange, my 11-year-old self being convinced that there was no bear on the license plate and my mom being convinced that there was. And it actually got rather testy. Uh, I remember, this is, a, this is a moment I can bring up with my family, and we remember it quite well. And, and it actually ended with a little bit of a fight, and we kind of separated. And after a minute, my dad goes, Aaron, I need to talk to you for a minute. Come downstairs with me. And I walk downstairs. And I'm just fuming, like, why won't mom believe me? And he's like, just follow me. And he takes me out in the garage, and he opens up the garage door, and he points at the car, and there was no bear on the license plate. And I was totally vindicated, absolutely right. I was like, mom, come look. And she came down, she's like, well, that's weird. I could have sworn there was a bear on the license plate. You ever been just certain about something, and you've been right? 
vindicated? You ever been just absolutely dead certain about something and you were wrong? Proven to be out of your element, proven to be speaking about something maybe you didn't really fully understand? Today when we look at the character, the, the person of Noah, really raises this question for us. You know, how do you know what you know? Are you certain about what you know? And in fact, when, when you know something, even in the face of opposition, even when it seems like everybody else around you is saying something opposite, are you going to remain confident about what you know? This idea of, of Noah really brings up to, uh, to us as people who, who follow Jesus, sometimes when we follow Jesus, there's things that God says to us in his word that are actually different than what the surrounding culture says. And so we need to look at some different relationships. We need to look at the story of Noah through the lens of a couple of different relationships. We're going to look at kind of four relational angles. The first, we're going to look at Noah and his culture. Second thing we're going to look at is us and our culture. Third, we're going to look at the relationship between Jesus and culture. And then lastly, we're going to look at the relationship between Noah and Jesus. Okay, so four relational angles we're going to attack this from. As I said, we are going to go back into Genesis and, and look uh, at the life of Noah a little bit. And that's the first place I want to start. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip back to, to Genesis chapter uh, 5. Actually, we'll start in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, by the way, all of these notes are up on our church website, so if you if struggle to take notes or to remember all the different references, you can always get those later. But let's go back to Genesis 6, and let's remember a little bit about the story of Noah and look at Noah and his culture. So the starting point really is in Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. And it starts with the idea that mankind has found itself in a state of tremendous wickedness. You guys remember the beginning of, of the Bible, the beginning of the book of Genesis. God creates everything. He creates it beautiful. He creates it good. Everything exists in a state of shalom, of, of peace, of wholeness. But because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, there's now death and destruction and brokenness that's come into the world. We saw last week the first murder, Cain murdering his brother Abel. We've seen, uh, if you read through those early chapters of Genesis, just a really sharp decline and now here in Genesis chapter 6, we're only six chapters into the book, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And, and listen to this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Is that a striking verse to anyone? I mean, every intention of the hearts of mankind was only evil continually, nonstop, nothing but evil you really need to understand just the, the superlatives here to really understand why this, this flood and this word of judgment comes from God. It actually says in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That this idea that God made things to be pure and beautiful and good and for man to, to love one another and to worship God, but now there's just death and destruction and mayhem everywhere. God is brokenhearted. Then we see that there's a man named Noah. Genesis 6, verses 8 through 10 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is our same word for grace, that Noah received grace from God, that despite the fact that everyone was, was wicked, despite the fact that everyone had turned away from God's plan for how humanity was supposed to operate, it says that Noah found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Notice how it says Noah was a righteous man after it says that Noah received grace from God. You guys know that that we are not righteous on our own, amen? We're not righteous just because we decide to start acting really good and be really good moral people. No, we are only righteous when God says we're righteous, when we've received his grace through his son Jesus. It's the same for the people of God in the Old Testament. Noah was righteous after he received God's grace. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. We saw that with the person of Enoch as well last week. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Noah received grace, and then because of that, Noah was warned of the coming judgment. Verses 13 through 18, just to summarize it, God says, I've determined to make an end of mankind, to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he instructs Noah, I want you to make an ark. I want you to make a boat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy this. It's the earth is filled with violence. And I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So God says, all of mankind, I'm, I'm so incredibly disappointed with mankind, I'm going to wipe them out, and God says to Noah, I'm going to start this whole project over with you and your family. Eight people, four couples. I'm going to restart this whole humanity project. So, Noah obeys and waits. Genesis 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, when you read through the story of Genesis, it's not entirely clear how long he had to wait I tried to do some of the math this week, but as I've said before, I'm a musician. I can only usually count to about eight. So I, I tried to do the math. It seems, like, it seems like about 50 to maybe 75 years that Noah spent working on this boat. Noah spent working on this ark. Another thing to note, the land, the region where Noah was, was not near any bodies of water. It's not near any oceans or lakes or seas or anything like that. It's just kind of out in the middle of the desert. And so he's working on a boat in the middle of the desert. The book of Genesis doesn't explicitly tell us that people mocked him, but it sure seems reasonable to assume, it sure seems reasonable to think that over the course of these 50 years, while he's building a boat in the middle of the desert, some people probably poked fun at him, wouldn't you say? In 2 Peter, actually, if you look uh, towards the end of the Bible, the New Testament it actually calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, meaning he's, he's proclaiming a message. As he's, as he's building this boat, as he's doing what God asked him to do, he's actually pro- proclaiming righteousness. So you've got to imagine there's some opposition. You've got to imagine there's some sort of resistance. You've got to imagine there's some people walking by like, what is this fool doing? Building a boat out in the middle of the desert. And you have to imagine, based on what Peter tells us, that Noah is actually warning people there's a judgment coming. There's a day that God has fixed to bring judgment on the world because of the corruption, because of the violence. God's bringing judgment. And you have to imagine, too, based on what we know about the character of God, the nature of those warnings, that there's a call to repent. Repent. Believe in the grace of God. Repent. Turn from your violence. Turn from your wickedness and and receive God's mercy. We don't know exactly how long, but Noah obeys and waits. And then we see in chapter 7 that Noah is vindicated and saved. So after this, the Lord says to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 
Take with you the seven pairs of the clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, the common animals. For in seven days I'm going to send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I've made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And so Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came onto the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now, there's more to the story than this, obviously. But this is kind of the area where the author of Hebrews really focuses. There's more to the story. Obviously, Noah's on the ark for a while. Uh, there's the, the whole thing with sending out birds, trying to find the land. They do land. They offer sacrifice. There's kind of a real unfortunate uh, postscript in Noah's life where after the ark, he gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. You guys may have read that part. Like, they didn't show me that in the flannel graph in Sunday school. Yeah, it's because it's not, it's not particularly flattering for Noah. Uh, you know, Noah was a righteous man because he had received God's grace, but Noah was certainly not a perfect man. And as we talked about last week, we have to be careful with these examples. We want to follow the good example, but we want to also not hold them up as some sort of junior deities. Noah was a very flawed individual. But in this instance, he did have faith, a type of faith that is to be commended, a type of faith that literally the entire surrounding culture around him believed and was acting in a, in a different way. And Noah and his family, these eight people of his immediate family, they're the only ones that believed what God had said. They're the only ones that actually trusted what God said. And so it raises a really interesting question about how we are to relate to culture. How is it that you and I relate to our culture? That's Noah with his culture. He's the odd man out. But, but what about us and our culture? Let me just briefly define culture for you for a minute, because I think that's one of those words that we can throw around a little bit, and sometimes it's, we don't really know what we're talking about, or we're not entirely certain of the meaning. Let me read from two sociologists who wrote, this is Krober and Cluckhorn. This is a definition that they give. Culture consists of patterns explicit and implicit, of and for behavior acquired and transmitted by symbols, constituting the distinctive achievement of human groups, including their embodiment in artifacts. The essential core of culture consists of traditional ideas and especially their attached values. Values is an important word. Culture systems may, on the one hand, be considered as products of action, and on the other hand, as conditioning elements of further action. So, so let, me, let me break this down for you. Let me try to simplify this a little bit. Number one, culture is beliefs and practices and symbols. Beliefs, practices, and symbols. All three of those things go together. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you walk into a, a building. You've never been in a, this building before, but you see before you a book with a bunch of writings on it. And you say, oh, okay, a bunch of writings. This must be teaching. This must be instruction, some sort of beliefs. And then you look over in the corner, and there's a bunch of uh, rugs rolled up in the corner, and then people pull them out for, for praying. Okay, that's a prayer rug. And then you notice on the back wall there's a big star and a crescent, and you think, okay, there's a symbol attached to it, right? What I just described to you, where would you be? You'd be in a mosque, right? You'd know that these, are, these people are adherents of uh, the, the Islamic faith. These are Muslims. They've got their book of beliefs. They've got their rugs for their prayer practice, and they've got a symbol. And, and sometimes, for us, the cultures we're a part of, we don't even realize that we're a part of these cultures because, because culture can be both large and small. There can be lots of different types of culture. There can be a culture of, you know, something as small as just a family, 
How many of you have certain traditions or, or practices or even beliefs in your family that would be uh, considered strange to somebody else if they ever saw you, right? I'm not going to ask for any examples, but you know, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes Pastor Travis being from Texas, he'll ask us, he's like, is that something that other families say or is that just my family saying like, that was just your family? That's all. I've never heard that before. Something about a, a mule stuck in a ditch. I don't even know what he's saying, right? We all have different sayings or different practices or different customs in our families, but we're also, as, as Americans, we're part of a, a large culture, right? Next weekend, you are going to be decked out in your red, white, and blue spandex, tank top, whatever you're going to be wearing, red, white, and blue. You're going to be barbecuing some meat, and then when it's just dark enough, you're going to start blowing stuff up. Am I right? Do I get an amen from anybody, right? What, what, what is that? Why are you doing that? Because we're Americans, doggone it, and that's what the founding fathers would want, right? This is, the <laughs> this is part of our large culture, the United States of America. We're going we're gonna to celebrate our country's independence. You're part of a, a small uh, culture, your family, you're part of a large culture, the United States of America. And, and, and you, you might need to understand that, that sometimes these different cultures, you, you don't even realize that you're part of them. Sometimes these things are, 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 are part of you because you were explicitly taught them, but other times you were caught. These things were caught. Culture can be both caught and taught. That's my third thing about culture that we saw in the, in the definition from those sociologists. You know, some things, some things are taught, right? Maybe you growing up in your family, your mom, your dad, your uncle, your, your grandparents, they said, in our family we do, and then they tell you this is what we do. But other things in culture, sometimes they're caught, right? Nobody ever sat you down and said, this is what we do in our culture, but you're just around it all the time. It's kind of like the air that you breathe. Let me, let me give you an example. I, I, was, I knew I was going to be speaking on this topic this Sunday, and so I started paying attention on one particular day, on Tuesday, as I was doing sermon prep. I started noticing something about our culture, uh, American culture, that was kind of, uh, well, disturbing to me, if I could put it that way. I left my house, uh, dropped off the kids at school, and I left my house, I started driving to work, and I drove past not one, but two bikini coffee stands, and a, what's one of those shops, Lovers, it's like they sell lingerie and pornography, so, so three different places I drove past, just on my short 10-minute commute to work. Then uh, I, you know, as known to do, check social media at work in the morning, and I had a, a, a notification that some woman who did not have enough clothes on at all had friend requested me, and so I clicked, you know, decline, and thinking mark this spam. Then, I uh, took a lunch break, went to the gym, started working out at the gym, and I uh, didn't select the music, but there was a song going on overhead. I didn't really pay close enough attention to the words, but it was something about spend the night with me, touch me, something or other, quite, quite you know, sexualized sort of lyrics. Okay, that's interesting. Then after the gym, I had to go uh, run to the, the Apple store because my phone was having a problem. I know Apple products are supposed to never have problems, but uh, my phone was acting up, and so I'm walking through the mall, and I walked past not just two Victoria's Secrets, but two other stores in which there's just large photographs of women in their underwear right in front of me. Then I drive back to the office and uh, I managed to work on sermon stuff for a while, and then I drove back home past the same two bikini barista stands and the lingerie shop as well. And I go home, like, I just had like 15 interactions with sexually provocative sort of material with zero intention of trying to seek that out on my own. Now, what does that tell me about our culture? What does that say? Now, nobody ever sat down and said, Aaron, in our culture, we're obsessed with sex. 
and we use it to sell everything from women's undergarments to hamburgers. I kid you not, the next night we went out to Red Robin, and there's a burger advertisement, and it just says, this is what sexy looks like, and it was a cheeseburger. I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> In our culture, our culture is not necessarily preaching that message, but it's just the air that we breathe. It's just the environment that we're around. Sex is the most important thing. We worship it above all else. Sometimes culture is taught, sometimes culture is caught. And then number four, it's a good reminder for us to, re to, to be reminded that we exist often in multiple cultures. Some of you, uh, you know, you come from a family background that's non-Anglo, non-white American, and you have certain cultural customs and traditions. I met with uh, a member of our church a, a few weeks ago who is uh, Vietnamese, uh, his family immigrated from Vietnam. He grew up in the States, and he finds himself sometimes conflicted between their ethnic background, their cultural values that came from Vietnam, and, and yet he was just raised in the United States of America, raised in the Seattle area. Some of you are, uh, are a part of a, a certain work culture. You, 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 you're, you're, a, you're a software developer, you're a programmer, you're an engineer, you're whatever, and each of those types of jobs have different cultural values associated with them. Some of you play sports or, or do different activities. You, you have these different cultural values, just things that are either caught or taught. You're here. Most of you are, are, are likely Christians. You're part of a church. And, and not only are there Christian cultural values, but there's individual churches. Individual churches do individual things. At our church, we like to open up the Bible every single week and really you know, take, a, take a, a significant amount of time to open up what God has to say in his word. These are all cultural things. These are all how we relate to our culture. And so sometimes, friends, do you ever find yourself part of two different cultures that maybe clash a little bit? You have, you have one group that you're affiliated with that does things one way and then another group that does things a different way. Maybe you, you grew up with a family that did certain holiday practices and now you got married into another family and holidays are totally different. You're, you're a Christian and you believe what God teaches about uh, sexuality in the Bible, that it's, it's a, a beautiful gift and it's a, it's a powerful gift. It's to be stewarded wisely in the context of marriage and then you're part of a, a culture that just says sex sells everything. Sell you a motorcycle, sell you a hamburger. We just use sex for everything. You see these conflicting cultural values? Have you ever felt frustrated by those tensions? Frustrated by those conflicts? So raise the question, how would, how would Jesus relate to culture? How would Jesus relate to culture? And this is a, a massive topic. I, I won't be able to do it justice in the short time that we have together, but a good starting point. There was a book that was written in, in 1951 by a man named Richard Niebuhr. Uh, it's called Christ and Culture. He wrote this book. He was the son of German immigrants. Uh, they immigrated from Germany to the United States of America, and so he grew up kind of aware of different cultures. He, he uh, I believe he received his doctorate from Yale Divinity School and then actually taught at Yale for a while. And he wrote this book called Christ and Culture, and, and it's a really important conversation starter. I would say there's, there's much good in this book. There's much that could be uh, quibbled with. Uh, and as well, I would put some uh, additional resources up on the website this week if you want to read or study further. But let me just tell you a little bit about what Niebuhr said, how different Christians in particular throughout the ages have tried to understand the relationship between Christ and culture. He says there's basically five different positions that, that Christians take on how Jesus relates to culture. The first one he says is Christ against culture. 
And this is basically an oppositional sort of relationship. Uh, in, in this, if you want to maybe kind of think of a, an example, this would be kind of your fight in fundamentalists, right? Christ is against culture. The culture is bad. We're going to resist culture every step of the way. Maybe, I mean, uh, not to be pejorative or poke fun, but this is where kind of the Amish sort of idea comes from, or, or, or certain monks. We're just going to withdraw ourselves away from the culture and have nothing to do with it. Culture is bad. People are sinful. We're just going to withdraw. Christ against culture. A second approach that he says is the Christ of culture. This would be a high level of agreement, a high level of synthesis, that, that Jesus made people and people reflect him, and so all these things in culture, they're, they're probably really good, and actually culture can he- help set these values, and we, we need to adopt the values of the culture because Jesus loves the culture, and, and this would be a high level of agreement. Again, if you want kind of a, an example of this, what it looks like taken to extreme would be the most sort of liberal, progressive type of Christians just saying everything that culture says is good, and we as the church need to follow what culture says. Then, Niebuhr says, there's, there's really kind of another approach of some sort of, some sort of uh, combination of the two. And this really takes three distinct shapes. The third one is Christ above culture. means that the, the conflict isn't really between Christ and culture. Jesus is just above it all. And when it suits his purposes, he uses culture to actually make us better. And there are other times where culture is obviously sinful and, and not to be embraced, but he says there's, 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 this is an approach that some Christians have taken. There's kind of a Christ above culture where Christ uses culture. A fourth approach is Christ and culture in paradox. And this one's interesting because basically these people who advocate this position would say there's always going to be a tension. There's always going to be things that are wrong about culture when it comes to Christ's relationship to it because people are sinful and people are broken and people don't want to follow God. But there's always going to be some good things about culture as well because People are created in the image and likeness of God, and even though we're, we're sinful and even though we're flawed, we're not as bad as we could possibly be, and even people who are sinful or people who reject God or reject Jesus as Savior, they still are created in the image and likeness of God, and they have dignity and worth, amen? And so he'll say that there's this tension between Christ and culture. There's a paradox there. And then the fifth approach would be Christ the transformer of culture, that Christ is all about transforming cultures, that when, when Jesus relates to a culture, it's to change things, it's to transform things, it's to take them from a place of brokenness to a place of wholeness, to take things from a place of fighting or violence to a place of peace. Christ is all about transforming cultures. And then, Richard Niebuhr, in his concluding chapter, boldly says, I don't know which one's right. <laughs> he says there, there, there certainly are elements You can look through the Bible and you can see kind of examples maybe of of all these different ones. You can see, you know, transformation of culture like when when Paul goes to Ephesus and a bunch of people get saved. The the book of Acts tells us that so many people stopped worshiping their idols and stopped practicing magic. They actually burned their magic books and they burned their idols so that all of the tradesmen, the metal workers who made the idols came out and said, we're going out of business because you people are preaching about this Jesus fella. That's a transformation of culture, wouldn't you agree? You can see examples of, of a transformation of culture like with Esther. Queen Esther has a profound influence over the entire Persian Empire because of her relationship with the king. You see examples of maybe the use of culture, Christ of culture in this agreement where, remember when Paul goes to Athens and he starts talking with these poets and with these scholars and he actually quotes 
one of their poets. He uses their culture. He says, your, your own poet said, you know, in him we live and move and have our being. He, he uses culture. You can see examples of this tension. Uh, I think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph working for the Pharaoh of Egypt. You guys remember that story? Nowhere does it say that the Pharaoh became a worshiper of God. Nowhere does it say that he led a prayer service and all of Egypt broke out in revival. Joseph just worked for the Pharaoh and helped save them from famine. And Pharaoh was kind of like, cool, your God's all right, moving on. Kind of an interesting sort of tension there, interesting paradox. We also see, though, there are times where it's the people of God against culture. I think of the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys remember that in the book of Daniel where the king says, hey, I'm going to build this 90-foot-tall statue, and then we're going to play some really rocking music, and at that moment, everyone's going to just bow down and worship the statue. Oh, yeah, the statue's of the king. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's dumb. We are not worshiping a king. We're not worshiping a statue of a king. We worship God alone. And so as everyone bows down during this big prayer service, these three dudes just kind of stand there. Ooh. They're going to get in trouble. They did. They got thrown into a fiery furnace. Don't worry, it's a happy ending. God saves them. It's fine. But you see these different examples. People point to different examples in the Bible. Which one is right? Here, here's, here's, here's what I would say. I would say there's always going to be a bit of a tension between Christ and culture because, again, the, the sinfulness of human beings. And I think there's always going to be some really beautiful things that come out of our culture because humans are created in the image and likeness of God. And we, as followers of Jesus, must seek to exercise wisdom. We need community, don't we? We need other people around us to help us to know. Maybe, maybe your personality type, maybe you tend towards being kind of a fighter, and you turn every situation into a, an against culture. I'm going to fight. Okay, well, maybe somebody else is more of a, you know, I was going to say hippie, but that, I didn't mean hippie. I just, you know, peaceful and wants to reconcile, and they tend more towards the, you know, the Christ of culture. What if you had two people like that to help balance each other out against the extremes or to bring perspective? No, this is actually a, a really important time where we need to stand up against something that's wrong and sinful in culture. No, this is a really good and beautiful thing in culture we need to adopt or to, to learn from. D.A. Carson, one Bible scholar, says this, instead of imagining that Christ against culture and Christ, trans Christ transforming culture are two mutually exclusive stances, the rich complexity of biblical norms worked out in the Bible storyline tells us that these two often operate simultaneously. Friends, we need wisdom. We need maturity. We need grace. We need community. I'm not going to be able to tell you today, here's how you relate to culture, but I want you to be aware. Here's the one thing I, I would love to make sure that we avoid. Let's not be unaware. Let's not be uncritical in our thinking. Let's be critical in our thinking. Let's be observant about the different cultures that we're a part of. What's good? What's bad? I, I get broken heart in particular. I said I, I grew up in Alaska and, uh, you know, 150 years ago or so, right after the purchase of, of Alaska, the various Christian groups went in and they, they absolutely just did violence to so many of the native cultures there in Alaska. Uh, as many of you know, my wife and I, we do uh, foster care and we have, uh, we have a we had a teenager, a native Alaskan teenager who grew up with us, and, and I got to learn a lot about native Alaskan culture, and, and absolutely, there are certain parts of native Alaskan culture that are opposed to the gospel of Jesus, but there's some really beautiful things about native Alaskan culture, and, and, and my wife and I actually got married at the Native Heritage Museum there in Anchorage, and, and just learning about those, those sorts of cultures, I just broke my heart to see the ways in the past that certain Christians had come in and said, everything about your culture is wrong, you need to act like white people. That broke my heart. 
And it was an, an extreme. It was one of these extremes that we're talking about here. Friends, let's not, let's not be that way. Let's not be extreme in any one of these. Let's not be uncritical, accepting everything that culture says is good. And let's not be rejecting of everything that culture has. Let's seek to embody these different values as the Spirit would lead us. Amen? So, with that said, however, the Noah story. Where does Noah find himself in the story? Which one of these, which one of these ones does, does Noah find himself at? Kind of an against culture sort of story, isn't it? When you have eight people and God says, I'm going to drown everyone else, that's kind of an against culture sort of story. Remember the context of God said that the, the violence, the wickedness of man was so great. It broke God's heart. He was devastated that he had even made mankind. Look, look, look again at what the author of Hebrews tells us about this. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world. That's, that's, that's an opposition to the culture, wouldn't you say? And became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's talk about Noah's faith for a moment. Again, Noah's not perfect, but here Noah exhibited some faith that is to be commended and to be followed. Number one, Noah's faith was tested and he persevered. Again, 50, maybe 75 years, he, he's building this ark, likely that he was mocked, as I said a minute ago. He was a preacher of righteousness. If nothing else, the Bible clearly lets us know that it's Noah, the seven other people in his immediate family, and then everybody else. He must have felt quite alone, huh? And yet he persevered. He kept going. He didn't give up on what God had told him to do. I mean, even just, if nothing else, the massive project of building a boat that huge. I, I, can, I, can't even, I can barely construct a mailbox. And he's out there building a boat, you know, with whatever help he might have. I don't think the movie was accurate. I don't think there were rock monsters helping him. But, you know, whatever. If you like to know a movie, that's fine. But I just think it's probably him and his sons building this big boat. He persevered. He kept going. We see also that the author of Hebrews says that his faith feared God. It says in verse 7 there, it says, in reverent fear. And here the fear of God is contrasted with the fear of man. You guys know the difference? The fear of God says, God, what, what you say is most important, and I'm going to let what you say dictate my, my actions and my beliefs and my feelings, versus fear of man. If somebody disapproves of me, if somebody else says I'm not good enough, if somebody else says I'm wrong, oh, that's going to crush me. Do you ever struggle with fear of man? Can I be honest with you? I do all the time. I care far too much what people think about me. Do you ever care too much what people think about you, what people say about you, what their opinion of you might be? I, I know I'm not alone in this, amen? Noah, his faith feared God. He says what God says is most important, what God says is most valuable, what God says is gonna be most influential and shaping in my life. The third thing about Noah's faith that's to be commended is his faith is prophetic. The author of Hebrews says his faith concerning events yet unseen. Events yet unseen. This, this hadn't come to pass. Again, he's building a boat in the middle of the desert. He's building a boat where there's no significant body of water, but God had told him that a great flood is coming, I'm bringing judgment on the earth, and I want you to trust me in this. It was yet unseen. It also says that by this he condemned the world, meaning there was a word of judgment that was spoken. 
I know we don't, in our culture, we don't like to talk about words of judgment often, but this is, this is something that God had deemed necessary because of the great wickedness of mankind, because of their violence. I know you and I, allow me to be sarcastic for a moment, we're never bothered by violence in our world, are we? Oh, we never have violence that disturbs us and we go on Facebook and go on rants about, right? Okay, end sarcasm. Guys, Noah was prophetic in saying there is a day of judgment coming. God is offering you an opportunity to receive his grace. He's very patient. He's waiting. He's not just taking care of business right now, but, but Noah believed he could see that into the future. He believed that what God said was true. And the fourth thing about Noah's faith that is to be commended and to be looked at is that Noah's faith was rewarded. Noah was vindicated. He, 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 was, he was like me in the opening story. I tell you, he was right. He knew it. He was right, even though there was opposition. He was right. God did bring judgment. God did bring the flood. And, and what's more, Noah was recipient of a covenant with God where God saved him. He took him through the waters of judgment, saved him and his family. Noah was rewarded. Noah was vindicated. He came out of judgment. He came out of death and was brought into new life. Noah is called an heir of righteousness. And it's interesting to think that Noah, even though he was rewarded, he didn't see all of it. He saw that immediate salvation, but he, he still was an heir of righteousness. Actually, later on in this chapter, when we get to verse 13, the author of Hebrews says about all these people, all these heroes of the faith, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So Noah was rewarded, but he wasn't rewarded completely. So Noah's faith could be commended. Noah's faith is something that we should seek to model in our own lives, but, but there's something else that's really critical for us to know is that the story of Noah isn't just about Noah, is it? The story of Noah isn't just about, here's this good guy who trusted God, follow him, be like him. No, actually, the story of Noah is all about the gospel. The story of Noah is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me take you to another verse briefly in 1 Peter 3, where the apostle Peter, remember Peter, one of Jesus' good friends, he says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Just, we'll come back to that some other time. Pretend, we'll, that's a very complicated verse. I'll explain it to you some other time. But here's the point I want you to see. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here's the point. It's a complicated verse, a lot of very deep theological and grammatical things we could get into, but the point is this, that Noah is supposed to point us to Jesus. That just as Noah, by his faith, constructed an ark and was able to save his family through the waters of judgment, so we who trust in Jesus are brought through the judgment that is to come through a greater judgment, through a greater salvation, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The story of Noah is not about Noah. The story of Noah is about Jesus. Look at Jesus' faith. It's, it's the same but greater than Noah's. Jesus' faith was tested, and yet he persevered. Jesus had the devil himself come to him in the wilderness and say, hey, give up this foolish mission you're on. You, you want to inherit all the nations of the earth? Just come to me. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all of the nations of the earth. Friends, you've experienced temptation, but you've never been tempted by the devil himself. And Jesus was faithful. Jesus didn't give up. Jesus persevered. Jesus feared God over man. 
The, the, the New Testament tells us that Jesus' own family, his own mother and brothers and sisters came and said, you're a fool. You're talking crazy talk. What's this Messiah business? What's this son of God business? What's this son of man business? Give up your foolish errand. But Jesus believed his father over the words of man. Jesus feared God over man. Jesus' faith was a prophetic faith. Jesus spoke words about things that were to come and, and warnings of future judgment. Jesus spoke prophetically. In fact, Jesus spoke a, a lot of words of judgment. If, if you ever hear somebody say that Jesus only ever spoke words of love and acceptance and never spoke words of judgment, that's just patently untrue. It's flatly not true. Jesus was the most loving and gracious human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. And in love and in grace, he warned people that God's patience wouldn't last forever. Repent from your sin. Turn. You know, leave behind your old life. Leave behind this violence and this wickedness that mankind has fallen into. And, and follow Jesus, he would say. Follow, follow me. Lay down your life. And Jesus was rewarded. Jesus' faith was vindicated. Jesus believed his father. He was rewarded because he was crucified, right? He was killed very specifically for speaking these prophetic words. But guess what happened, friends? On the third day, Jesus came back to life. He rose from the dead, proving once and for all that everything he said was true. Isn't it good news to know that we don't serve a dead founder or, or a dry, dusty book of religion or rules? We serve a living Savior who rose from the dead. He was vindicated. He was proven to be a truth teller about God and about us and about the world. And he was rewarded we saw back earlier in Hebrews chapter 2 that he was able to bring many sons to glory. Did you know, friends, that Jesus' great reward is us? The Bible says that, that we are his inheritance. We are his precious, prized possession. That Jesus was delighted. Jesus was joyful to go to the cross, to suffer, to bleed, to die, so that he could save many brothers and sisters. Is it encouraging to you? Is it encouraging to know that, that Jesus' faith, he persevered and he, he feared God and he spoke all these words so that we could be brought into right relationship with God, so that we could be forgiven of the, our sins and our wrongdoings, so that we could be loved and accepted and adopted into the family of God? That's such great news. Jesus was vindicated. Jesus was rewarded. So when we look at the story of Noah, let's never forget that while Noah was good, Jesus is better. Amen? I want to close with another word that Jesus himself says. Jesus himself said, though, in Matthew 24, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. That's culture, isn't it? Practices, beliefs, rituals, symbols. Culture is just happening. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said the, the people before Noah's time, they didn't want to hear this word of, hey, repent, trust in me, follow me. They didn't want to hear it. They just wanted to continue on with their cultural practices. Jesus said, it's going to be like that before my return. Friends, I don't know where you are today. I don't know everybody in this room. I know that some of you 
are not yet Christians and you, 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 you're here because maybe you have questions about Jesus and I would simply say to you, please, please don't believe that, that you, you just have unlimited time. I don't know when your time will come. I don't know when you'll die. I don't know when the, the day of Jesus return. There's an offer of grace on the table today. To hear this, this invitation to trust in him, receive his grace. But I've, I've screwed up really bad. Yeah, welcome to the club. All of us, there's no, there's no perfect person in this room. Being a Christian is not about being a perfect person. Being a Christian is about acknowledging the fact that we're not perfect people and we need a perfect savior. That's what being a Christian is all about. Jesus said, I, I, wanna, I want you to be forewarned. Peter picks up on this theme in, in 2 Peter 3. He, he says, you know, scoffers, scoffers, people just kind of make fun of this whole thing. They deliberately overlook this fact that though the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood of Noah. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. These are these are hard verses. These are difficult words to hear. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Sometimes, friends, you know, you're, you've walked with Jesus for a long time, and you see things that just bother you, things in the culture that don't agree with, with God's word. When will Jesus return? When will he come? Why is he being so slow? Peter says, he's not being slow. He's being patient. God has great affection and love for hurting, messed up, broken people. Amen? And if you don't think that, you have a wrong view of yourself and a wrong view of God. God is incredibly patient. And so may we as followers of Jesus have that same patience and the same urgency. For those of you who are Christians, there, there's gonna be times like Noah, we, we're gonna have to stand against culture. We're gonna have to fear God more than we fear man. Everybody else is saying one thing, everybody else is doing something, and, and we say, no, that's, that's just not how I'm called to live because I'm part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And for us Christians, we rejoice that Jesus is our Noah who, who sent us through the waters of judgment and into salvation. For anyone who's here today who's not a Christian, there's an invitation, trust in Jesus, receive his grace, be a part of his family, and don't let it be tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Let it be today because God is being patient towards you. I want to call us to a time of response now. We're going to respond as we do in, in a variety of ways. We're going to respond uh, first through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Uh, the, the offering team will uh, collect the offering, and then they're going to pass out the communion elements. I uh, would invite you to, if you're a guest, know that you're not ob uh, obliged to give anything. This is something that, that those of us who are part of this church are going to do as worship to God, as response to His grace. Also, as they pass out the communion elements, we just invite you to hold on to those uh, for a minute so that we can take that all together as a church family. While they're passing the offering buckets, let me read a few discussion questions, things for us to talk about this week in our community groups. I really hope that you're taking advantage of small group because me talking to you or Travis or Shane talking to you for 45 minutes a week is good, but boy, is it so good to be able to work these things out in the context of relationships. So I really hope that you're taking advantage of that. 
Number one, share with your group a time when your faith was tested by opposition from others. How did you respond? Have you ever caved in? How has Jesus' grace met you in that failure? Number two, when you consider the five views presented on the relationship between Christ and culture, what do you see as the strengths and the weaknesses of each? How can each of these views help us as we follow Jesus? Number three, what are ways that we can help each other remain faithful to Jesus even when we face opposition? And then number four, read 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. I just touched on it, but I would encourage you this week in your groups, dive into that passage. What's the connection between the flood of Noah and the return of Jesus? Why is waiting a part of both? Hint, the answer is found in verse 9. And how does this idea, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to take it easy on you guys this week. How does this idea help us while we wait for Jesus appearing? And as I mentioned, there's a, a bunch of extra resources, blog posts, books, summaries, things I've put up on the website. So I would encourage you, if you want to study this topic more thoroughly, go to the website and, 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 and download those resources. A couple things to pray about this week too. Pray that all followers of Jesus would remain faithful to him no matter what opposition may come. And number two, pray for those who do not yet know Jesus. They would respond to his patient and loving word of salvation and grace. And as the communion servers are passing out the elements, we just encourage you to, again, hold on to those for a minute. This is for Christians. If you're here today and you're, and you're not a Christian, we'd invite you to either just abstain and reflect on, on why this is such a memorable meal for us as, as Christians. And for those of you, maybe, maybe you, you want to join with us. If you want to respond to God's grace, then by all means, please join with us at the table. Let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians 11 that sets the, sets the stage for what it is we're celebrating here. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Would encourage you, as the band begins to sing and lead us in a time of response, would encourage you maybe for a moment just to sit, pray, reflect before partaking of the Lord's table. And then as you're ready, eat of the bread, drink of the cup. Thank God for the fact that he has sent Jesus to save us through judgment like Noah and then I would invite you to stand to your feet and begin singing with us. This first song is called One God, and it kind of speaks about the fact that, that though there are rival claims to authority from other so-called gods, that Jesus really is the one God. And we want to stand and, and follow him alone, no matter what the cost. And so that's what that song's about. I'll do this. Let me pray, and then we'll begin our time of singing in response. God, we thank you for this word today. God, I, I thank you that, that you bring challenge to all of us. God, for some of us, we need to be challenged maybe to stand up for you, to stand up and, and, and to follow you in the face of opposition. God, for others, there's maybe a challenge here to stop picking fights and to stop looking for opportunities to have conflict all over the place. God, whatever it is that you're doing in our hearts, I pray you would bring that down to the deepest area of our own lives and our hearts. And God, we want to thank you above all else for Jesus, the one who's, who's the greater Noah, the one who doesn't just save us from a flood, but saves us from eternal separation from you, the one who brings us into right relationship with our heavenly Father. May we sing, and may we celebrate, and may we rejoice our, in our Savior Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.